SWS Growth Equity Strategy Update for Q4 2022. This is Mike Parker, Lead Portfolio Manager for SWS Growth Equity. Our flagship long-only strategy benchmarked against the Russell 1000 Growth Index. Given the increasing utility of audio content within our investment process, it only seemed natural to offer an audio version of our quarterly. As always, your feedback is incredibly helpful and always welcomed. I'll begin with our take on the current environment and review how our strategy plans to execute through it before handing it over to Kurt Grove, who will walk through issuer-specific takeaways. The written piece contains a number of URLs, charts, and tables. Please refer to the PDF copy to access these supporting data. For the fourth quarter of 2022, SWS growth equity returned negative 2.91% net and negative 2.70% gross of fees, lagging the positive 2.2% total return of the Russell 1000 growth index. The quarter capped a second half of 2022 that edged out slight overall relative ground, negative 0.12% and positive 0.32% net and gross respectively for our strategy versus negative 1.48% for our index over the second half of 2022. Although it may feel like a garden hoses progress in refilling an Olympic sized pool after the market's first half 22 cannonball displaced us from our high water. Signals from bottom-up fundamental sources provide critical insights on our path to recovery. Our analysis of the latest data dives into conclusions informed by recent on-site due diligence trips, deconstructs read-throughs via the top performance contributor detractors of our portfolio, and assesses how we plan to navigate the macro. We may not be out of the woods on clearance of economic overhangs, but the good news here, those conditions are not a prerequisite for active return generation. Since our days of managing capital during the global financial crisis inside a $100 billion pension, a lot has changed regarding the composition of incremental buyers to U.S. public equity. It's an easy dynamic to discard as significant but it's a critical one to consider at our current market juncture. The complete anonymity that market participants enjoy today and the killer feature of having zero humans to insert fat-fingered friction make equity trading's reach for liquidity manifest in very different pricing reactions, particularly the red-colored ones that glare at us from our screens. It's also far harder to pinpoint the source of capital flows without a headline to hint at a sizable participant being forced out or shuttered entirely. Public equity prices, by definition, are set by the marginal buyer 252 days a year. These same pricing outcomes from an entirely different composition of market participant activity also act as the hand that forces investor capitulation. That is, unless you harness the power of this context to avoid the head fake. 
Now, tools exist to assist in sizing today's pool of marginal buyers. We know that 2022 capped another year where passive U.S. equity flows dwarfed that of active. $278 billion flowed into passive, whereas $232 billion departed active last year. Over the past decade, $1.8 trillion in total has left actively managed funds. The total AUM snapshot at year-end 2022 favored passively managed U.S. equity at a record disparity to active, with passive funds having amassed $6.3 trillion compared to active's $4.6 trillion. We also know a record number of options contracts traded last year, making triple witch days more eventful than any prior period. In essence, the first half of 2022 market capitulation occurred in hands of a record number of algorithmic participants, leaving the second half of 2022 aftermath to a record dearth of fun fundamental investors to bargain hunt. Growth equity currently holds 36 individual positions. As such, we spend the lion's share of our time underwriting the prospects of individual issuers. However, marrying macro with micro is a critical exercise we perform to diagnose the market's capacity to bear risk. Coming off a year where 1,200 plus issuers and the Russell 3000 experienced greater than 50% drawdowns off their 52-week highs, 753 of whom went on to close the year at greater than a 50% discount off that high, these conditions make it highly unlikely for 2023 pricing outcomes to pattern match any prior precedent. Yes, inverted yield curves are powerful prognosticators for recessions. However, we'd argue that this magnitude of indiscriminate selling, largely at the hands of an entirely different composition of players on the field, could make a solid portion of the likely economic recession reflected in pricing levels of some, but certainly not all, issuers. We have high confidence that our 36 names are disproportionately exposed to issuers with a greater disparity between current price and intrinsic value in comparison to what's reflected in broader markets. A whole new generation of investors has again been schooled on how 30 to 100 times forward sales entry points rarely, if ever, pencil out to being attractive returns over any reasonable holding period. However, now many of these 30 to 100 times names trade 3 to 16 times, and some issuers in the cohort have gotten religion on the need to prove cash flow generation potential. Vista Equity Partners' recent $2.6 billion bid for Duck Creek Technologies at seven times forward sales acts as a tangible reminder of how valuation floors can occur, especially in software. No better precedent exists on how customer stickiness, pricing power, 
and capital light benefits can translate into attractive out-year margin and cash flow potential in software business models than Oracle with its 40% operating margin profile. That said, not all of the 185 sub $10 billion market cap software issuers in the Russell 3000 will survive to show Oracle-like profitability, and nor will many of the cash-strapped unicorns. That said, we have strong hunches on some that might. Rolling forward, our deep dive analysis on overall market valuation from last quarter, we see preliminary evidence that the great valuation impairment may be behind us. While the U.S. Treasury yield curve was inverting, overall equity multiples slightly expanded in 4Q of last year, largely via S&P earnings cuts. Under the hood, we saw the largest constituents, i.e. the top 10 issuers in the S&P 500, converging downward towards the smallest, i.e. the remaining 493, in terms of forward P.E., Please see the chart in our PDF for further information here. Outside of the concentrated largest issuers, the 10 and a half times forward earnings of everyone outside of the top 10 that we saw back in 3Q of 22 may prove to be one of the most attractive valuation entry points we'll see for some time. Tying in observations from our recent due diligence meetings we have increased confidence that the wholesale indiscriminate selling we experienced in 2022 has entirely dismissed many opportunities that will yield meaningful value creation. Coming away from the consumer electronics show meetings, we see a clearer runway for uptake on the undeniable trend of higher semiconductor and software content into the automotive sector over the next decade plus. We go into greater detail in the discussion of one of our top contributors later on, but we are on the cusp of specific opportunities penciling out to meaningful revenue and profits starting just next year. We also left CES with a better sense of how the autonomous debate has firmly crossed from a peak of inflated expectations into the trough of disillusionment in Gartner hype cycle parlance. The cloud of doubt that's been growing over the industry was on full display at a forum we attended that consisted of the president of the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety, an MIT research scientist, and an industry journalist. From the panel's perspective, we are decades away from the everyday consumer vehicle being fully autonomous while they describe the industry as currently facing an emperor's close moment on the promise of the technology. These conclusions are entirely merited and correctly assess what's available today. However, after spending time talking with the engineers designing the L2 through five systems, with the tier one suppliers making concerted bets on their uptake, and with the global OEMs ordering them for their 2026 models, 
we see a clearer bridge to eventual uptake. It will start with demand for a tech stack enabling safety functionality in the near term while laying the groundwork to a full suite of functionality down the road. Now, regardless of how many autonomous miles we'll be driving over the next decade, significant milestones will arrive sooner. Next year, the European Union ups its requirements for vehicles to have advanced emergency braking capabilities. This 2024 deadline enhances the requirement to detect pedestrians and cyclists after its 2022 mandate required new vehicles to ship with vehicle-to-vehicle -vehicle emergency braking for collision prevention. The U.S. has taken an industry opt-in approach versus regulatory compulsion, with nearly all 2022 U.S. models having shipped with the technology following formalizing plans in 2016. The driving force behind all of this is a common interest to save lives, namely by making a dent in the 43,000 lives lost in U.S. motor vehicle crashes last year, a figure that's heading in the wrong direction from 33,000 lost in 2014. Pedestrian injury is also up 80% since 2009, all summing to perfect use cases for non-distracted, always-on computer vision systems. For solution providers laser-focused on this end market, real value unlock can occur when the same autonomous braking system can monitor driver focus and drowsiness, can fuse inputs from radar and in some cases LiDAR, and can ingest data from over a dozen plus cameras, which is another plug for Amberella later in our write-up. All of this capability will become available as the bar for safety scoring moves higher. The semiconductor use case in automotive is just one example, but countless other opportunities exist where price levels suggest issuers have been left for dead despite improving opportunity sets. Netflix's quarterly print last week is one such case and it re represents a reminder of how falling victim to indiscriminate selling does not require a company to dispel every existing bear case thesis. We are still very early on Netflix's model transition to an ad supported pricing tier, and we don't have perfect clarity of how its password sharing clampdown will ultimately impact churn and ARPU. However, these answers are not prerequisites to affecting a 100% plus move off the stock's May 2022 bottom, especially as a multi-year transition towards scale that begets meaningful cash flow generation begins to take hold. The institutional long-only industry has built a convention of assessing managers for five-year periods for an important reason. This is typically a sufficient time frame for metal to be tested by a large enough sample of curveballs. As we approach our strategy's five-year milestone in May, since spinning out from our pension fund predecessor, this particular five-year period seems to have crammed in multiple decades worth of macro challenges. That said, 
the light illuminating our path forward is a core tenet of our investment process. Careful underwriting of future cash flows. Having navigated through a period drowned out by a sea of speculators who have now largely been flushed out, and with trillions of passive dollars sitting on their hands currently, the door is wide open for fundamental investors to put cash flow valuation rigor to work. We see the current environment as target rich for a discerning yet adaptable process that can uncover situations where value deviates meaningfully from price. Now over to Kurt. Part two, our reason for existence, alpha delivery. The final quarter of 2022 provided significant dispersion of returns between sub-indices, finalizing a volatile and bifurcated 2022, headlined by the S&P 500 returning a positive 7.6% for the fourth quarter. Growth again lagged value in the large cap space, exhibited by the Russell 1000 Growth Index returning 2.2% versus the Russell 1000 Value Index at 12.4%. Sector-wise, performance dispersion was just as extreme in the Russell 1000. Energy, materials, industrial staples, healthcare, and, and financials all led the way, all returning greater than 12% in the quarter, while technology and consumer discretionary lagged, returning 0.6% and negative 5.7% respectively. SWS growth equity underperformed in the quarter, returning a negative 2.9 and negative 2.7% net in gross of fees, respectively, relative to our stated bench, benchmark, the Russell 1000 growth index at 2.2% giving back some of our relative gains from the third quarter. The intentional decision throughout 2022 to concentrate our portfolio and increase weighting to our higher conviction ideas has shifted the portfolio to a smaller market cap weighting, higher growth prospects, and slightly higher daily volatility. While this decision hurt performance at the December 31st fourth quarter snapshot, we remain convicted in our portfolio posturing and are beginning to see evidence that stock-specific factors will return as performance drivers soon please refer to the PDF form where we have specific tables and graphs highlighting our performance since inception. Part three, contributor and detractors. Contributor number one, Umbrella. Umbrella, a staple on our quarterly list of contributors and detractors, find itself as a positive contributor, returning 46.4%, outpacing its semiconductor peers at 14.2% for the quarter. We most recently wrote about AMBA in our 1Q2022 and 3Q2021 letters as a detractor and contributor, respectively. We have an extensive history with Umbrella, owning it in the portfolio since SWS Growth Equity's May 18 inception and participating in the initial public offering at $6 a share in 2012 at our prior shop. Owning position for almost five years requires a deep level of due diligence up front and then a constant reassessment of valuation, market backdrop, and stock-specific near-term and long-term setups. The above diligence is a common criticism of quote-unquote growth investors. They may understand technology at its core and can spot trends early on, but struggle to size, value, and position a stock correctly. We think Umbrella is a good example of generating active trading alpha, i.e., our stock sells at $178 and $225 in 2021, and subsequent repurchases in 2022 from the $61 to $78 range, all while building towards today's largest position in the portfolio at a 6.5% portfolio weighting, as the thesis relatively strengthens relative to today's valuation. 
We recently sat down with Amberella's CEO and CFO, a few key customers, and others within the company at CES, the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. While Umbrella has always had a heavy presence at CES, we think 2023 was the coming out year for the company. Before CES, critical updates from Tier 1 automotive suppliers Continental and Bosch announced they would partner with Umbrella on its newest chip, CD3. These partnerships were, are much more involved than a typical quote-unquote press release announcement, which typically delivers little in the way of true collaboration or partnership, and served as validation that Umbrella's CV3 chip is the chip to disrupt the automotive semiconductor market for L2 deployments. We have long suspected that a vision-based system combined with high-definition radar was the best approach to tackling autonomous driving relative to LiDAR and other modalities. In turn, a semiconductor should focus on these specific tasks first to best process information. A vision-based semiconductor company focused on computer vision algorithms via its 2015 acquisition of VizLab should be better positioned than a GPU-centric company, a la NVIDIA, a Wi-Fi cellular company without an updated 5 nanometer automotive chip, a la Qualcomm, and a black box originally LiDAR-centered company, a la Mobileye. The current setup for Amberella is skewed asymmetrically bullish. There is limited downside to estimates as Amberella continues to execute in the home and enterprise security via the access control markets and enters the automotive markets through its vision-based driver recorder monitoring and e-meter solutions. Current estimates contemplate only approximately $3.5 billion in revenue over the next six years, relative to Amberella's $2.3 billion in the automotive-only pipeline and estimates of $2 billion for camera-based revenue. We estimate this $2.3 billion pipeline number will ultimately be conservative, even without Umbrella winning a major domain controller socket with its CV3 chip. The opportunity for the $2.3 billion pipeline to be much larger, i.e. much closer to NVIDIA and Qualcomm cited $18 billion and $30 billion respectively, is greater now than ever. Issues with the various competitor approaches are running into physical limitations. As we heard directly from Continental engineers at CES, Automotive OEMs are being forced to contemplate new, de new designs to incorporate water cool cooling for some models that utilize Mobileye or NVIDIA systems, while Qualcomm still hasn't even delivered a new chip for the 2025-2026 models. Umbrella unveiled its CV3 chip, offering 500 ETOPS operating at just 50 watts of performance last January, and had samples in customers' hands this past summer. CV3 translates to a 5.5x performance, a 4x power efficiency, and 10 times DRAM efficiency advantage. We believe this is the right solution at the right time for the ADAS market. We would not be surprised to see a Tier 1 automotive OEM decide to utilize Amber's solution in the next year. Our early guesses would be VW via Cariad, its autonomous software partner, Ford, or Kia. Contributor number two, Intuitive Surgical. Intuitive returned 41.6% for the fourth quarter, significantly outpacing its medical equipment peers at a positive 16.6% in the fourth quarter. Intuitive's outperformance in the fourth quarter has clawed back underperformance early in the year, where at one point the stock traded down 50% year-to-date. Intuitive received support from investors who found the de facto industry leader in the robotic surgery trading at its lowest earnings multiple since 2017, ex-COVID, March of 2020. The difference in 4Q2022's forward PE of approximately 35 times versus the same level in 2017. It's much clearer now who the industry leader is versus when it was who it was back then. For full year 2022, Intuitive Surgical returned negative 26.2%, narrowly outpacing its medical equipment peers at negative 29.1%, and losing out to healthcare generally at negative 12.1%. 
Like many companies exiting the pandemic, Intuitive suffered from the bullwhip effect of 2020 being down in procedure volume, 2021 back into, back, bouncing back to above trend growth, which left 2022 to return towards trend as supply demand normalized. We see a normalized order pattern for the Da Vinci machines resuming for surgical centers and hospitals in 2023. With procedure volume growth growing 28% and 18% in 2021 and 2022 respectively, and unit growth growing much slower at 7% and 12%, we expect the installed base to re-accelerate as robotic utilization reaches its limit. Additionally, the street's expectations for 11 and 10% procedure growth in 23 and 24 are underestimating growth in the near term. Pandemic headwinds in U.S. and Europe, and now China, are finally waning, and robotic surgery can resume taking share at a normal pace from laparoscopic surgeries, which, while additional indications increase robotic addressability globally. Contributor number three, Tapestry. Tapestry had a standout quarter, returning 35%, besting the negative 13.2% performance of its consumer discretionary peers. We last wrote about Tapestry in 1Q2020, he won as a previous top contributor. Similar to our practice in Umbrella, Tapestry is another example of di discipline position sizing. While not as active with trading in Tapestry, we purchased shares in June 2020 at $14, sold in March and May of 21 at $43 and $46, and recently repurchased at $32 in September of 2022. Despite the positive 54% move off the October bottom through January 20th, Tapestry trades at just 11 times next 12 months earnings. We continue to like the setup for Tapestry relative to the rest of consumer discretionary. Tapestry compares favorably with earnings growth expected to be 10% and trades at 11 times next 12 months earnings versus the rest of retail at negative 5.6% expected earnings per share growth and trading at 29 times next 12 months earnings. We expect 2023 to be a tough year for retail as margins come under pressure with increasingly stretched consumers and bloated inventories. We would not be surprised to see EPS numbers ratcheted down further. Tapestry will have some of these same headwinds, but as offsetting tailwinds to dampen the effect via share buybacks, China reopening, which is approximately 15% of sales, and heightened logistics costs retreating as supply chain pressures ease. Additionally, the handbag market didn't oversell in consumer demand, growing in line with history at approximately 6% revenue CAGR since 2019. Revenue growth was exclusively due to price, as unit sales have been effectively slat since 2019. We were able to sit down with Tapestry's management at their headquarters at the end of 2022 and came away more convinced of their ability to execute on their plans for $8 billion in revenue and $5 in EPS in 2025. Our conversation centered around Tapestry's internal digital and data strategy that allowed its coach brand to pivot successfully towards millennials and Gen Z generations without alienating its core baby boomer customer. The same data strategy is being deployed at Kate Spade to prove it can be a successful sidekick to coach. New CFO Scott Rowe brings critical experience in working with a house of brands from his time at VF Corp, and he will be the focus as the team as they target high teens total shareholder return growth over the next three years. Detractor number one, Garden Health. Garden falls into our list of detractors for the first time since our initiation in 1Q 2022, significantly underperforming in the fourth quarter, returning a negative 49.2% versus its pharmaceutical and biotechnology peers returning a positive 15.2%. The pharmaceutical and biotechnology peers are dominated at the index level by a few large pharma companies, beneficiaries of the market's quote-unquote flight to safety experience in the fourth quarter. So what occurred to cause a 49% loss in a single quarter to Garden, 
a liquid biocancer diagnostic company. Surely, it's much-anticipated readout from the Eclipse trial proving the efficacy of diagnosing colon cancer from a simple blood draw must have been proven ineffective and now stands no chance of FDA approval. As investors, this would have been the easy way out, forcing our hand to capitulate on a technological failure, destroying our DCF and NPV of approximately $5 billion in recurring revenue derived from $10 million in annual test for colon cancer at $500 apiece. This hypothetical scenario isn't what occurred for Garden. The Eclipse trial read out at 83% sensitivity and 90% specificity on a random trial of approximately 20,000 patients, which was well above the stated guidelines of 74% sensitivity and current FIT and FOBT tests, which currently account for 6.7 million tests per year. While the 83% sensitivity and 13% advanced adenoma detection came in below street expectations of approximately 87 and approximately 20% respectively, we think investors put on their proverbial, proverbial quote-unquote biotech hots and saw a headline trial readout that was, quote, well below expectations and instinctively sold. Typically, an investor's first sell in biotech is their best sell. This phenomenon is due to many biotechs having a single drug or product portfolio and if it fails to hit headline readout numbers, the company usually fails. After speaking with management and listening to the CEOs at the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference, it's clear Garden has heard positive feedback from the Eclipse trial and still feels very confident about FDA approval. While there is no way to minimize the risk of FDA not approving the blood draw, we think we've sufficiently investigated this potential issue and are comfortable with the risk. Following this significant prodding on the FDA front, we turned our attention to internal valuation metrics, 83% sensitivity relative to 87% sensitivity is not statistically significant, nor do we suspect this difference is important to primary care physicians who ultimately recommend and, recommend and administer this test and will be ecstatic about another modality for cancer screening that increases the number of patients screened. There are currently 16 million annual unscreened patients in the U.S. A portion of Garden's demand will come from the unscreened population and a portion from those who prefer a blood draw to a, blood draw to a stool-based test. Our cash flow projection contemplates no share gain from colonoscopies. Liquid bio as a cancer detection modality is highly preferred to stool-based tests and has a significantly higher adherence rate of 90% versus 65%. Colon cancer detection is the stepping stone for liquid biopsy usage as a cancer diagnostic. Next is lung cancer detection, opening up annual testing requirement versus three years for colorectal screening because of the accelerated cancer spread and because 50% of all lung cancer deaths are from non-smokers. Once annual testing is unlocked and approved by the FDA, the same garden shield test can be used on other cancer types under one flat LDT price without FDA approval for every cancer type. We think in the next 10 years, it will be common practice for 45 plus year olds to have an annual blood draw in conjunction with their physical to screen for cancer. Garden's Eclipse readout solidified itself as the leading player in the cancer diagnostic space. We purchased incremental shares at $30 a share or an approximately $3 billion market cap. Distractor number two, Atlassian, ticker team. Atlassian, an original May 2018 SWS growth equity inception position, makes its way to our list of detractors for the first time after the last appearing as a contributor in our 3Q 2021. Atlassian underperformed in the fourth quarter, returning 38.9%, negative 38.9% relative to its software peers at negative 0.1%. Atlassian's underperformance was caused by the company's third quarter earning release, 
which showed that the initial softening experience in 2Q had worsened. Free to paid conversions via procurement of new customers slowed further from 2Q, and in the third quarter, upsell growth from existing customers started to slow. We think this disappointment is a temporary setback, purely related to the macro headwinds affecting many tech companies, i.e. high-profile job cuts. As the de facto choice for ITSM, DevOps, and work management, the sudden shift from rapid hiring to firing across the tech sector hurt Atlassian disproportionately. Generally, we view this trend of firings as a short-term blip versus a long-term trend. We still subscribe to the belief that software is still leading the world and the world is still short of developers. While GDP may be under indexed to software versus what it will be in 2030, we acknowledge that the transition from a hypergrowth industry boosted by pandemic tailwinds to an industry that produces sustainable cash flow has not been smooth from an equity price perspective. From a fundamental perspective, the transition hasn't been as harsh. Atlassian, for example, saw a 10 and 9% reduction in 2025 sales and gross profit estimates post 3Q earnings disappointment, fully reversing the positive estimate revision since April. Netting these effects out was neutral to estimates, but the stock fell 50% in the same period. Now trading at just 10 times next 12 months gross profits at year in 2022 and underwriting approximately 25% compound annual growth revenue through 2025 seems extremely attractive to us as investors. With a TAM of 27 million software developers, 100 million technical workers, and 1.1 knowledge, 1.1 billion knowledge workers, Atlassian demonstrated its pricing power this quarter, highlighting its model stickiness and long-term optionality. Detractor number three. Twilio earns the unfortunate distinction of repeat detractor in back-to-back quarters, returning a negative 29.2% versus its software peers' returns of negative 0.6% in the fourth quarter. We won't rehash the entire thesis and encourage investors to read the 3Q 2022 write-up for more detail. Our early attempts to pinpoint a bottom on Twilio stock price before its November analyst day proved wrong. The highly anticipated event left investors underwhelmed. The combined pulling of medium-term growth targets and a half-hearted approach to reigning and operating expenses sent the stock tumbling approximately 35% after hours. While extremely painful to watch in real time, this type of reaction appeared to be hate-selling by investors. Facts disclosed at the event helped formulate our view of Twilio's path forward. Concerns over the messaging business losing profitability were disproven. Gross profit per message is going up. Twilio is gaining profitable message share, and the messaging TAM is expanding. On the software side of the house, Twilio disclosed known issues with segment sales turnover and revealed its standalone software business comprised $416 million of last 12 months' revenue, or approximately $500 million next 12 months' revenue, at greater than 75% margins. Segment, a software offering for Twilio that's the number one rated CDP player, is a big beneficiary from the shift to first-party data from third-party data as the online advertising market grapples with navigating the Apple disruption via ATT. Flex, the software contact center solution offered by Twilio, is showing strong adoption, but sales cycles are long. For expense management and margins, the the company announced an 11% headcount reduction, and sales compensation for messaging offerings were shifting focus to gross profit dollar generation versus top-line growth. All these factors resulted in a reset to 2023 expectations. However, the long-term success of segment Flex combined with a still attractive and more profitable messaging business, remains intact. Turning to the valuation picture, Twilio trades at just four times gross profits, as 42% of its market cap in cash, and trades at a 36 times multiple 
of the company's net interest income, all while being cash flow neutral today. Listening to the company post its November analyst today, it was clear company management understood investors' messaging and proposed cost-cutting initiatives were insufficient, and now gap profitability is the target. Management has major incentives to execute quickly as CEO Jeff Lawson's 21% super voting shares convert to 2% voting power in June. We would not be surprised for this to attract activist interest or for Twilio to be involved in M&A discussions. While it has been disappointing owning Twilio over the last year, the embedded skepticism has presented opportunistic investors with a high margin of safety. Upside from the core business inflecting, reduced expenses showing true profit potential, or M&A and activist involvement provide multiple pathways to investors' success. We utilize this mosaic investment approach to increase our position at Twilio at $53 a share. Part four, portfolio changes. We have no new positions in this quarter, so we will not expand and do a deep dive right up. We did do make other portfolio changes. Position additions were Amberella, PayPal, Cloudflare, MP Materials, Meta, Twilio, Pure Cycle Technologies, Natera, and Garden Health. We reduced positions in New Relic, American Homes, Accenture, Netflix, Visteon, Arista, ServiceNow, Intuitive Surgical, and Veritex. And we did not exit any positions. 